0: This episode of Writing Excuses is brought to you by Audible. Visit Audiblepodcast.com slash excuse to start your free trial membership. Season nine. Episode twenty-two.
1: This is Writing Excuses Microcasting! Fifteen minutes long.
0: Because you're in a hurry. And
1: we're not that smart. I'm Brandon. I'm Dan. I'm Mary. I'm
0: Howard. And
1: we're taking
2: questions off of Twitter again. So Bat Chicken Seven. Has a question. Well, I love these Twitter names. Um, this is one that's very simple to answer, but I get it a lot, so I'm going to ask it. Should you include your prologue as one of the three chapters in the submission packet when submitting to agents and publishers, assuming they ask for three sample chapters?
1: Uh, well, remember that your goal with those three chapters is not to set up your story, it's to show off your writing and impress an editor. And so if that prologue does that, then yes, otherwise, no.
2: And if your prologue doesn't do that, maybe you should cut your prologue.
1: Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, if your prologue is optional. La.
2: Yeah. Okay. And that's usually the the answer that you get is if your prologue is essential, then include it. If it's not, then think about why you have that prologue. Um, Zero gain asks, how do you get out of the spot where your protagonist has no motivation and you can't find it?
3: Right. That's Better usually time for me to take some methylphenidate <laughs> <laughs> um, I, <laughs> because I, I don't have the motivation. Yeah,
0: yeah. Often it is it is an author thing. Um, what I look at is what it is that they need to achieve and why they want it. And if they don't have a sufficiently compelling reason for why they want it, then um, I've made errors in my uh, in my right. character creation in the first place. Yeah.
2: The, the big difference in this is sometimes writers seem to want to consistently write someone who has depression mm-hmm. I run into a lot of my students that, like and a person with depression it's hard for them to get motivated about anything yeah um, that can be a story it's a really hard story to write basically every other character protagonist either you know accepting the one with depression or the one who your story is about a person with no motivation you should have built that character to be passionate about something and ask yourself how you can make those passions align with the plot
1: when I run into a situation where the character doesn't have motivation, it's usually uh, the, the outline is wrong. The character mm-hmm. is not motivated to do what I want him to do, according to my outline. Therefore, I need to rethink things.
2: Matthew Thomas asks, what's the best way to prove to a spouse that your writing is more than a hobby, short of getting paid for it?
0: That is a long long conversation that you have to just sit down and have mm. um and and it involves a very secure marriage and explaining you know you you have to be really open about why it's important to you and talk about the the length of time it takes to develop as a writer and and where you want to be and where you envision this going but you can't expect them th- there is no let me do this one thing that will demonstrate that for you
1: Yeah. Um, I I would also add show don't tell. If you're constantly telling your significant other that writing's important to you, that's different than if you are constantly writing and they can see that it's important to you. You You definitely have to do both. Right. And the discussion that you're talking about is important. Um but that discussion is gonna have a lot more weight if they can look back at their your relationship and say, yes, I yeah. know from your actions that yeah. this is a big part of your life. Right. Yeah, Instead
2: if, of giving up time with your spouse, if you were giving up your video game time yes, and exactly. saying, "I am giving this up to spend my time writing," that means something. Yeah. yeah. And
3: I think I think that may be if we're going to make any mm-hmm. sweeping generalizations at all here, which is hugely dangerous, that's the one I would make, yeah, is that uh your relationship with your spouse Mm-hmm. needs to be the thing that's sacrosanct and writing needs to be displacing something else that your spouse knows that you love yeah so that they know that you're serious about yeah. it. you're going to
2: say i'm getting up an hour earlier in the morning before going to work to do my writing that will mean something yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: yeah it's also worth pointing out the the thing that convinced my wife that i was serious about this is that she read my writing mm. and she liked it and she was sold. She, that's the moment where she became as sold on my dream as I was. I
3: would love to have Sandra here to ask her, because we joke about when I started cartooning. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember telling her, I think I'm going to take up doodling as a hobby. Those were my exact words. And she smiled and nodded. And within two weeks, I was convinced that I wanted to have a career as a cartoonist. And I don't know what her mindset was. And I, Sorry, I need to open a can of worms with her over dinner. You can go ahead and ask the next question.
2: <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, let's see. Someone complaining my series isn't done yet. Oh, Brandy Blahnik, um asks, when you take a long break after starting a piece, how do you get back to it? Which is an excellent question.
0: Uh, a lot of times I'll reread the stuff that I've been doing to remind myself of where I was. Mm-hmm. Um, this is part of why I outline. Uh, I will also, a lot of times I'll do the reread and then plenty physical activity where I can do, uh, like plotty nonverbal stuff, uh, while I'm doing that, like walking around the block or something. Um, but I do try to do that in a way that's not going to engage the storytelling part of my brain with any other stories.
2: Right. And I try to keep my draft. I do this exact thing, but I do a, polishing draft as I mentioned a few weeks ago. I'm not going to make structural changes. I'm not going to do big revisions. I'm going to polish the language and as I said dump everything back into RAM so to speak. I do
3: language polishing. I also uh, and (laughs) this requires a little bit of planning. Um, When I stop writing I always try and write at least 10 or 15 words that are a note to myself that basically say the next scene is when the character demonstrates why he's angry about this and such. Um, it's, it's just a note to me that
1: so I'll know where I'm supposed to start. I always like to go back and read through my early notes and my brainstorming stuff. You know, mm. if I've had to leave a project for mm. a long time in the middle, yeah. sometimes that helps me refocus, but mostly what it does is it reminds me why I'm excited about that project. Why well, write this in the first place? Because, yeah, why was I so passionate about this? two months ago when I had time to work on it before, and that gets me back in the That's zone. great advice. I never yeah. thought of that. That's, I'm so glad you're back. That's what then. I need yeah. to do in order to finish you.
3: my piece for the Writing Excuses anthology. <laughs> whole,
1: whole
2: um, uh, this one is kind of targeted a little bit more at, um, at Mary. Hmm. Where do you start research for historical fiction work, and how do you keep it from becoming scattered or overwhelming?
0: Okay, so where I start, usually I, um, it, it starts accidentally that I have read something that makes me excited about the era. Okay. Um. So I'll, what I'll usually do is start doing uh, very broad, broad research. And sometimes it's honestly, I will read Wikipedia articles, which tell me about kind of the big overview. And mm-hmm. then I go to the reference librarian right. and I say, give me books. Mm-hmm. Um I look for a couple of broad overviews, and once I've done those, then I start drilling down into the specific areas that I'm particularly interested in. A lot of times the research that I use is not stuff that winds, a lot of time the research that I do is not stuff that winds up in the, uh, in the novel. But I find that if I have kind of a good basis for the period, that it will, um, It'll help me structure the characters better because I know kind of what the popular events are. Um, I read as much as possible primary source stuff. Okay. Uh, popular journals, diaries; mm-hmm. these are fantastic. But mostly, mostly my main thing that I will just say over and over again is: reference librarians are your best magic tool.
2: Let's go ahead and do our Book of the Week, which is actually also yours, Mary. You're going to promo The Fall of the Kings.
0: Yes, this is The Fall of the Kings by Ellen Kushner. Uh, this is really fantastic as an audiobook. And one of the things, so if, um, she has several other books, but you can actually step into this as a solo, even though it is technically a sequel. Um, one of the things that's really interesting about this as an audiobook is that Part of what Ellen was particularly excited about when she wrote it was the relationship of the students. But a lot of her readers were focusing on characters from the previous novel. And so in the audio what they've done is that all of the student scenes are fully voiced it's a full cast, mm. and the other scenes, many of them, um, not all of them, but many of them are uh, just Ellen narrating,
3: hmm.
0: but it's got an amazing cast. So it's almost
3: like a teleplay. It's
0: almost like a teleplay. The, the scenes with the students uh, have sound effects. You can hear rain. You can hear uh, glasses clinking. But well, it is a
3: teleplay at that but point. But you
0: still get narration as well with, with that. Wow. Uh, but you've got narrators like Neil Gaiman in there, and... Uh, Catherine Kelgren, who's one of my favorite female narrators, oh, yeah. and Simon Jones. It's really, it's wonderfully done. And it's really, if I didn't call attention to it, you wouldn't, I don't know that you would know why this is happening, but it really does make those characters all much more vivid. Uh, and it's, it's a wonderful audiobook. I highly recommend excellent.
3: it. Audiblepodcast.com slash excuse. Start a 30 day free trial membership grab yourself a copy of The Fall of Kings by Ellen Kushner, narrated by lots of neat people, including Simon Jones and Neil Gaiman and Catherine Kellgren. Mm -hmm.
2: Alright, next question. Ryan Van Loan asks, let's say you sold your first book. How do you tackle book two in a series? You've done this a few times, Dan.
1: Yes, um, I've done this a lot. (laughs) There's different ways to do this. Number one is you take the key character or the key conflict or the key magic or the key technology that was presented in the first book and then go deep with it like we talked about last week. Figure out another way that that could be misused or abused. Figure out something else that could go wrong um, and then or just look at your character and say well after their experience what do they want to do next. Uh, Another way is to to look at character arcs and say Mm -hmm. you know in the first movie Peter Parker learned this. What's he going to learn in the second movie? And then build your structure around that.
2: Yeah, um, good advice. I mean, I think specifically on this one, if anyone else has anything to chime in, I think looking at you finished a book, now doing a sequel, rather than I've plotted three books Mm -hmm. and we're moving on.
3: I uh, I think that it's helpful to remember that you own this whole project and so you can take risks that Hollywood is unwilling to take. Mm-hmm. When Hollywood runs a sequel, the producers are saying, we want more of this, yeah. only make it bigger. And what you're able to say is, I don't want to do more of that, but I'm going to take these characters and I'm going to do something else. Uh, you can exp- don't you don't need to treat it like a Hollywood sequel. Right. You can
1: make it different.
3: Now, whether or not your editor's going to buy it doesn't yeah. matter altogether, I- but I want you to be interested in writing it.
1: You know what I did with, with Partials? Um, there's three books... And I kind of did what they did with the alien movies, where everyone, it's, it's the same aliens and the same character and the same setting, but each, bo- each movie is a different genre. Right. Yeah. The partials books are, the first one's a dystopia, the second one's a quest, and the third one's a war story.
0: That's what I did with the glamorous histories as well. The first one is a straight up Jane Austen pastiche. The second one is a military spy novel masquerading as a regency romance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, then I have a political thriller masquerading as a regency romance heist novel and then the last book is basically regency grimdark nice that's and that's exciting.
3: how i've approached the schlock mercenary books regency well. grimdark yes yeah yeah <laughs> I mean, love... it's down there really deep <laughs> really deep but it's there subtle visual metaphor decoded
0: yeah the, uh, the i love the fashion that you use in that it's just you know it really it makes me weep
2: how do you go about writing something like Brandon Sanderson's Cosmere, an overarching story connecting multiple novels? Asks Caleb M. Powers.
0: How do you do that, Brandon?
2: Well, I was throwing a bunch of you guys. I'm like, let's let's do a Brandon One. Howard does this too though. Um connecting a lot of different stories. One of the big things that I keep in the forefront of my mind is I want each story to stand on its own. And this is important for me in a series as well. I like it when in a long series of books, each book is its own thing. And I actually think this ties in to what Mary was saying is one way to do it would be to say each book, let's make sure that each one has a different theme. For something like um, like my books, each series is having a different theme. Where we have, you know, the Mistborn books, which are heist books. And we are having Stormlight, which is straight up war-based epic fantasy. And I'm, then I'm doing, you know, Warbreaker, which is actually political intrigue trying to stop a war. And so I'm, I'm picking these and I'm doing themes. One's more humorous. One's more this. So that I'm, I'm approaching each one a different way. But the connections have to, for me, be loose enough that if someone picks up the middle one and hasn't read in the rest, mm-hmm. they love that book. They never notice what they're missing. Mm-hmm. Um, and they... And yeah. I I
1: want to stress that. Yes. Because all love to Brandon, I am not super interested in the yeah. giant Cosmere. Mm-hmm. And so I ignore it. Yeah, And I still enjoy the books and I love them for what they are. And
2: that has to be first. All this other stuff yeah. can be fun Easter eggs for me. Yeah. But that has to come first.
3: For me, it always comes back... I say always. Uh, almost everything that I, I do to make my works better comes back to the promises I'm making to the reader. And in order to build a grand overarching whatever, there have to be things left unfulfilled somewhere in the story so that those threads can be picked up someplace else. And I try and make sure that that is a low-level promise that I made to the reader, and not the one that they're going to feel really disappointed by when it doesn't get wrapped up in this book.
0: Yeah, when we were doing when I was doing puppetry, the the thing was it had to be entertaining for everybody who was coming, but that not everybody who was coming had to get everything. Like the kids did not have to get all of the humor; they just couldn't feel like they were missing something.
2: Yeah. Um, as a contrast to what we did before in a previous podcast, what part about um, being a writer you guys most enjoy? other than the actual writing as a contrast to all the stuff that we weren't warned about
1: okay i will tell you that uh, three days ago i had lunch with john delancey and hung out in his house for a couple of hours
2: that's pretty cool that that's um,
1: meeting people that i admire is amazing being friends with kevin anderson is awesome mm-hmm. um, yeah that's a that's
0: yeah, I have I have a couple of friends that I have to very firmly squash the squee when I'm hanging out with them because this back of my part of my brain is going,
2: <gasps> mm-hmm. and yeah. I've
0: completely lost all verbal ability. We were reading
2: one of Pat Rofflitz's books. My um, my writing group, we had stopped and we were talking about his picture book, and there was a dis- disagreement on something about it. So I'm like, let me text Pat and see what he had to say about this. And I texted him and he called me back. And we had this big, big conversation, so then I could tell the writing group what he had meant and things like this. Being able to go to the source is yeah. awesome.
0: Um, I, I have to say one of the other things that I really, really love uh, is fan art. Mm. I just think, you know, anything the fact that I have made something that makes people want to create and be in the world longer fills, and it part of it, I was an art major in college, right. but it fills me with such giddy glee. I'm like mm-hmm. I just, I had no idea that that was going to be a thing when I signed up to be a writer and I love it. I yeah. describe
3: that in different terms. I have captured a portion of another human being's imagination and brain and time and they are continuing to spend it in my universe without me doing any extra work. That's the highest compliment they can possibly totally. pay me.
0: Totally.
2: Um, I will cap this one off by just saying, being able to work for myself, set my own hours, and be part of something like the, being a creator-owned property, when you know I listen to my friends talk about the jobs they do sometimes. I'm, they, they do great stuff, but you know, being a cog in a machine that is putting out a product that I mean, I remember talking to my good friend Isaac, and he did all this work on something that didn't ever even get released as a video game developer that it just got thrown basically in the trash and at the end of the day what i get to do is my vision i can release it people can experience it and there's that direct connection and i have an enormous amount of control over my art that is really one of the best parts of being a writer it's the
3: difference between creating a thing that you own mm-hmm. and being being part of you know, like the cast of a TV show mm-hmm. or a Which is, Hugo is Award-winning awesome. podcast yes, or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> yeah, oh, see, right. this is... this is, <laughs> That's actually kind of nice. Yeah, that is kind of nice.
0: This is the only part where I can't go like, yeah, because I'm, I am I miss the puppetry. Mm-hmm. And and I have to say that, you know, stories of things gone terribly, terribly wrong as a writer are not nearly as funny as the things that go terribly, terribly wrong as a puppeteer.
2: <laughs> I'm sure all of that stuff is awesome. Uh, I'm just saying...
0: But I get all of the...
2: Setting all my hours and stuff. So but I got out. all of that. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, granted, not on the school
3: tour. Setting my own hours so that I get to go to movies on opening day,
2: mm-hmm.
3: write about the movies, and then having a local TV studio invite me to a premiere because of the stuff that I am writing for grins in my free time. Yeah. Yeah, that's just cool. Yeah. How did that even happen?
0: Just having someone give me money for, like, writing down a daydream. Sweet.
3: Yeah.
2: All right. Dan, have you come up with?
1: I have a writing prompt for you. Right now, wherever you are, in your car, in your office, wherever, look around, identify an everyday object, and then write a post-apocalyptic world in which that object is used as currency.
2: (laughs) That's awesome. All right. This has been Writing Excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go write.